Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Nat Cohan, Senior Vice President for Climate and Environmental Defense Fund. Nat will give us a readout on the outcomes of this year's annual international climate negotiations, known as COP25. We'll talk about the goals of the conference, whether those goals were achieved, and several other issues, including conference protests, the role of the U.S. delegation, and what to look forward to at next year's COP26. There was so much to talk about that Nat and I went about 10 minutes over our usual episode length, but we think you'll appreciate the extra time given the importance and timeliness of this topic. Stay with us. All right, Nat Cohan from the Environmental Defense Fund. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. So, Nat, we're going to talk today about COP25 in Madrid and the international climate negotiations that wrapped up last week. But first, we'd like to ask all our guests how they got into working on environmental topics in general. So can you tell us what steered you into this field? Sure. So I usually mention a couple of things. Um, A big influence on me was my grandmother. Um, She lived near me when I was uh, growing up, when my family was growing up out on the in the Bay Area in California. She was a docent, a volunteer docent at Point Lobos State Park, which for anyone from Northern California, is one of the most beautiful places anywhere. And so she, you know, she really got me interested. She was very passionate about that place and about the environment and that kind of planted the seed. And then when I was a junior in high school, I spent a semester at a program called the Mountain School uh, the Mountain School of Milton Academy. It is the Mountain School is actually still there. Um, that's where I first really got immersed in uh, environmental issues more more deeply. Um, that kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of what I um, what I do now. And uh, and my older daughter just went there um, last year. So now there's a nice oh. connection as well. Yeah, very cool. Uh, I've actually spent tons of time at Point Lobos. I had a girlfriend in college whose grandmother mm. lived literally next door to the there park. Um, it's really an amazing place. So, um, so let's get into the substance. We're going sure. to talk about um, COP25, uh, which uh, when we say COP25, we're referring to the Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. Uh, we're not going to use too many acronyms today, um, but let's um, start off by just getting a little bit of groundwork and a little bit of background on the UNFCCC and these annual COP meetings. Can you kind of give us a, a really quick whirlwind tour through what the UNFCCC is and how it's evolved over the last um, you know, 25 years or so? Sure, yes. So the UNFCCC, or the Framework Convention on Climate Change, that, that, um, uh, it, it, the full name refers to the treaty that was signed back at the first Rio Earth Day, uh, sorry, the first Rio uh, Earth Conference back in 1992. Um, and actually for the U.S., what, one thing that was uh, interesting about that is that was a treaty that the Senate ratified um, and that uh, President George H.W. Bush uh, negotiated and, uh, and signed into law. So that was a shining moment very early on, way, way long ago, uh, on bipartisan cooperation on, uh, on the environment. Um, so coming out of that Rio Earth Summit, um, that was the, the genesis of all this. And the first conference of the parties, or COP, COP1, uh, was in Berlin in 1995. 
Um, and then this is the one that we just passed in Madrid was the 25th. And if you want a very broad history, there's actually somewhere online, there's a great um, you know, history of the, of the UNFCCC in 30 seconds cartoon. That's easy to find. But the basic history is uh, the first thing that happened was uh, the negotiation of the Kyoto Protocol, which was agreed in 1997 at COP3 in Kyoto. And the way that was set up, that was a treaty underneath the overarching framework convention, and the Kyoto Protocol envisioned uh, a very sharp split between uh, developed countries, or uh, like the U.S. and Europe, which were to take on specific quantitative emissions reduction targets, and developing countries like China and India and Brazil and a whole other range of developing countries, which did not have formal obligations under the protocol. That was actually written into an annex to the protocol, Annex 1. So there's a set of countries called Annex 1 countries, which were these developed countries. Now, at the time, that seemed to make sense. The U.S. was by far the world's biggest polluter. China was really just very early on in developing its own economy. But the Kyoto Protocol didn't take effect until 2008. And by that time, two things had happened. First, uh, the U.S. had decided not to ratify it or not even to submit the document for ratification. Bill Clinton signed the Kyoto Protocol but decided not to submit it to the Senate because he was pretty sure it wouldn't get ratified. And then when right. George W. Bush came into office, he just abandoned it. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was uh, by the time it took effect in 2008, um, you know, China had grown enormously, India had grown, uh, and, and so the fraction of emissions that was covered by those developed countries was much smaller. So it became a very narrow treaty by the time it started. So already by then, people were looking for something else. In 2009, uh, there was a conference in Copenhagen, which was meant to be, what's next? Uh, what's, you know, the, uh, what's going to be after Kyoto Protocol, or how do we continue the Kyoto Protocol and strengthen it? The Obama administration had just come into power in the U.S. There were a lot of high hopes, and they were dashed when Copenhagen basically ended in failure and acrimony. It collapsed at the last minute. It was very dramatic, but it didn't end in anything. But it did lay the seeds for a new approach that would include all countries. Um, so in Durban in 2012, that was formalized in an agreement to write a new protocol, or there's actually, it was, I forget the full name, it went by the acronym PaleoALF, which was something like a, <laughs> it effectively said any kind of legal agreement, or, you know, or some other agreement, instrument with legal force, there was something in there about that. Um, the idea being, you had to design something that could, that the U.S. could agree to without having to put it up to the Senate, because that is what right. had sunk Kyoto. So that led to uh, the Paris Agreement in 2015, which embodied this idea of all countries participating and got rid of that so-called Kyoto firewall between developed and developing countries. But in order to do that and in order to, to be something that the U.S. could go ahead without, uh, on without Senate ratification, you had to have a structure that really is uh, voluntary. And what I mean by that is countries in the Paris Agreement, they make commitments called nationally determined contributions. They're supposed to make those commitments, which say what they're going to do to reduce their emissions. Um, they make those every five years. Uh, and then there's a structure in place to report on those commitments, to ensure transparency, and so on. 
So Paris was signed in 2015. You know, of course, everyone, that was rightly viewed as a high watermark. Uh, but then, uh, you know, just over a year later, in November 2016, of course, Trump was elected in the U.S., and, and that has really thrown a wrench into to the whole process. We can talk about that later. But the short story is that by last year in Katowice, countries were supposed to agree on the rulebook for implementing the Paris Agreement, the more detailed guidelines and standards that would provide, you know, guidance for how countries report their emissions and how they submit these NDCs and so on. Almost everything was actually agreed last year, and the one piece that wasn't, we'll talk about, uh, I know, later about markets, but there was one piece that was outstanding. So the, the, if you think about that broad arc, you know, I always think about the UNFCCC process as, uh, you know, uh, up and down, lots of up and downs, right? Some periods of, of high watermark agreement like Paris, uh, some periods where it's much harder to see progress going forward. And, and frankly, I think we're in one of those latter periods now. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get into that. I mean, from my, from an, <laughs> purely from an acronym perspective, PaleoElf has to be the, yeah, the high watermark. Really but, exactly. um, but, uh, but let's, so, so you've given us a really fantastic uh, grounding here. Let's talk now about this most recent COP, COP25 in Madrid. Uh, from your perspective, uh, what were some of the key goals going in? You just mentioned one element of the rule book. Um, you know, was that really the centerpiece of, uh, of the COP or were there other major elements that uh, countries were interested in, in talking about or uh, hammering out? Well, so frankly, uh, stepping back a bit, I mean, I think objectively this COP was always a lower stakes COP um, in the sense that uh, you know, 2015, they were negotiating agreement. Uh, last year, they were supposed to get all the rulebook agreed. Next year in Glasgow at COP26, that's the five-year mark. I mentioned that every five years, countries need to come back and re-communicate or update their targets, these NDCs. So this was kind of always going to be a, an interim kind of COP, right? But we do these every year. So every year, you have to gen something up. And there were really, I think, three things on the agenda. Uh, one of them was, as I said last year, um, markets. Uh, this idea of guidance for markets was carried over for carbon markets. That was carried over from last year because that was the one piece of the rule book that couldn't be agreed. A second piece was this was the year there's been a review of um, something called the Warsaw mechanism for loss and damage. There's an I in there too, so it's the WIM. Uh, there are all these acronyms. Yeah. Um, that was agreed in 20, I'm trying to remember, I think Warsaw was 2013, so, um, or it might have been 2014, I get the years confused, but that was agreed before Paris. That's about so-called loss and damage. Could we envision a UN mechanism to compensate countries that are suffering the impacts of climate change already, the most vulnerable countries, small island states, countries in sub-Saharan Africa, and so on, could there be a mechanism to compensate them uh, that would be paid for by the rich countries? So that was, uh, that was an agenda item because a report came up, a review came up, and there was a natural uh, point to, to ask how to move forward. And then the third piece was just generally looking ahead to next year in Glasgow. You know, what kind of language will countries agree to about the need for more ambition, because if there's one thing that's very, very clear, and it was made even clearer by a couple of reports that were released by the UN Environment Program and others on the eve of this COP, there's the gap between the objectives of the Paris Agreement, which is to limit 
global average temperature rise to well below two degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels and with an aim to one and a half degrees, uh, it's very clear that the targets countries have actually committed to are nowhere on that trajectory. Way, the emissions are way above the trajectory they need to do to meet the Paris Agreement objectives. And so ambition is something we need much more of. And that was sort of the third part of the agenda for Madrid was what are countries going to say about ambition in advance of uh, next year when they're all supposed to come back with new targets. Great. That's really helpful. So so if we think about those three key elements that you've talked about, you know, establishing rules for markets, um, thinking about loss and damage, and then thinking about ambition, how would you sort of evaluate the success of the event uh, based on those uh, those three objectives? Hmm. So uh, one word, failure. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should sugarcoat it. It's, you know, it's easy when you've been in the when you've been in the process for a while or you and you've just spent, you know, in, you know, in some cases, 14 days, in my case, you know, five or six days at the end. But you've just been like in this process. You always want to find what are the silver linings. But I yeah. think we have to be honest and say it was it was a pretty much a complete failure. I mean, it wasn't as bad as it literally could have been. It literally um, and it, and at some point it almost looked like it would be they would walk away with nothing. They managed to salvage, you know, some decisions that recognize this and note that and urge this. But uh, I think on all three dimensions, it was a it was basically a failure. There was um, no agreement on uh, carbon market guidance uh, for the second year in a row. They did make progress, but they weren't able to bring it home. So they left without agreement. There was uh, basically the um, negotiations over this loss and damage. Uh, mechanism were quite uh, acrimonious and didn't result in anything new. That That's not necessarily a, su- a surprise, but it certainly is not a success. And uh, ambition, the, the end language was pretty weak on ambition. Um, now, I'm one of those people who thinks that, you know, the words that are in the, on the piece of paper that the <clears throat> cop does is uh, that those words don't matter nearly as much as what countries actually do. Right. But there were a lot of people looking at that and, and they were certainly very disappointed by uh, the kind of uh, language that countries were, were willing to agree to. And it's certainly not a good sign when countries are not even willing to use the word ambition or say that we need more ambition. So across all three of those areas, I think it's fair to say it was a, it was a failure. I should say not for lack of time because this cop set the record for the longest cop in history going 44 hours past the scheduled end time of Friday, 6 p.m. So um, they spent all that time, but they still couldn't agree on anything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's a sort of stark and sobering <laughs> overview uh, to, to, what, to what happened. Let's dig into, you know, one of the major um, elements that you talked about, which is something, you know, that RFF has a lot of experience in, which is thinking about markets and mechanisms for trading. Um, to my understanding, you know, a lot of this was embedded in a section called Article 6, um, and that there were a couple kind of important sticking points that came out of Article 6 that countries uh, had discussions about and, you know, may have reached some agreement in some places and, and fail to reach agreement in others. Can you give us an, a little bit of an overview of what these issues were discussed under Article 6 and uh, sort of talk about their importance and, you know, and maybe what the outcomes were? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, and you're right, Article 6, um, it's the sixth article of the Paris Agreement. Um, 
and it is uh, it, it's framed actually in an interesting way, which is uh, which I think is relevant to how we think about the role of markets and trading in the international context. It's it's framed about cooperative approaches. That's the title of the article. And when I say an article, you know the the rest of the uh, the agreement is made up. There's a, a, a you know there's an overarching section in the beginning, and then there's an article that has the objectives, and then there's an article about what countries need to do and targets and so on. There's an article about forests. There's an article about reporting. So one of the articles is about uh, so-called cooperative approaches, and that is widely understood to mean markets. And I think it's a suitable title, a suitable label, because really in the international context, markets are about international cooperation. Um, we know that, as I just said, we're going to, uh, one thing we really need is more ambition. We need countries to do more and a core premise for international cooperation is that countries will be able to achieve more together than they can on their own. And markets, if done right, are a critical pathway for that sort of cooperation. Um, so if countries get together and they can uh, take advantage of markets to find the emissions reductions wherever uh, and whenever they can be done most, uh, you know, most quickly and cheaply, that can raise the overall ambition, that can increase overall emissions reductions. So that's why markets are in the agreement, that's why they're they're there, uh, and, and I'll just I'll, I'll say you know EDF has done some analysis that suggests full use of markets could roughly double the ambition that countries could achieve under the Paris Agreement relative to what they've already uh, agreed to do in terms of those NDCs if they put the same resources to work through a global market where they were cooperating and and working together they could get almost double the emissions reductions. That's very consistent with a lot of work that RFF researchers have done over the years. It's consistent with a similar estimate from MIT and so on. So this is an important deal. It's a big deal. But you've got to get it right. Um, and that's what this, uh, this negotiation in Madrid was all about. Um, the language of Article 6 in the Paris Agreement itself recognizes that countries can go ahead and, uh, and, do, uh, and take advantage of markets. But it also um, opens the door uh, to the need for guidance on what that looks like. Um, so when we talk about Article 6, there are really two parts. Actually, there's, there's three, but frankly, I, no one really understands what the third one is. It was a, it was a Bolivian. I'm <laughs> not, not exactly clear what um, the, the eighth paragraph is called, Article 6.8. I'm not really sure exactly what it's supposed to be doing. It's there for a political agreement. But the two pieces that are very clear... One of them is the second paragraph of Article 6, called Article 6.2, and the other is the fourth paragraph, Article 6.4. So 6.2 is about bilateral transfers between countries. So let's say the European Union and Switzerland just agreed on a linkage of their two emissions trading systems. Um, that's a great example of Article 6.2. If Europe and Switzerland are going to link their systems um, first of all, Paris Agreement says, great, they can do that and use, uh, you know, they can do that in the context of meeting their targets. Um, and if Europe ends up buying some credits from Switzerland overall, then those credits can be applied towards Europe meeting its target. But the article also says there's, you need to have guidance for robust accounting, in particular to avoid double counting. So if the Swiss reduced 
emissions by 100 tons and Europe and those credits get sold to Europe, then Europe can apply those credits towards its target. It can apply those credits towards achieving the European target. But if it does that, Switzerland can't apply those credits towards its own target, right? You can't apply the same, you can't count the same emissions reductions twice. That sounds very simple, but it turns out to be critical, and we can come back to some of the details. So that's Article 6.2. It's about bilateral trading. And the important thing there is getting the accounting right. Article 6.4 is about a new mechanism uh, that the UN might uh, create, might establish, which would essentially allow countries that aren't ready to have their own carbon markets up and running yet, uh, still allow them to access a global carbon market through a UN mechanism that would have very detailed standards and procedures. And if you checked all the boxes and you, and you did all the work, um, you could generate carbon credits for emissions reductions achieved, you know, let's say through building a solar plant or, um, capping a landfill and capturing the methane gas and, uh, and, and you know, um, burning that instead of letting it into the atmosphere or uh, reducing emissions from agriculture, all of those things, um, there would be a mechanism to, to recognize emissions reductions from those and create credits, uh, and that would be overseen right. by the UN. Yeah, it's sorry to interrupt, but that's, I mean, that sounds like a, a, an extension of the clean development that's mechanism, correct. right? The CDM exactly that was right. developed for Kyoto. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, this, if you go far enough back in the negotiations, uh, the, it, when we were in Durban, uh, and I was on the U.S. government delegation at that time because I was working in the White House, so in Durban, you know, the shorthand name for that was uh, son or daughter of CDM. So the thing that now is Article 6.4 used to go by the name New Market Mechanism, which was basically, okay, what's, uh, how do we take this clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol and uh, you know, uh, apply it going forward. So those are the two channels. Um, and essentially, you know, when you come in then to the negotiations and, and think about what were the sticking points, on Article 6.2, that's the bilateral one, uh, the sticking points coming in were, were really around, okay, how, do we, how broadly do we apply this no double counting provision? Everyone agrees in principle that you shouldn't double count or there they say they agree, but uh, does it apply, for example, to uh, emissions reductions that are from a sector or a greenhouse gas that is outside a country's uh, NDC, a country's nationally determined contribution? So let's take China. China has a NDC that's just CO2. They've committed to peak CO2 levels by 2030. They could, you know, China could have uh, emissions reductions from methane, uh, let's say from a landfill uh, or from agricultural, uh, you know, from, from cattle operation or an agricultural operation or even from oil and gas. Those are all sources of methane gas, which is different than CO2. So if, if China reduces its methane, um, you know, and it wants to sell those credits uh, in this bilateral context, does it have to account for those reductions they will show up on China's inventory when China reports to the UN its total emissions, but China's not going to count them towards its NDC, which is only about carbon. So that was a question of scope, and the strong environmental integrity position is, yes, you have to count those emissions really wherever they occur. In part, that's because that's what the atmosphere sees, and in part, because you don't want to create an incentive where 
countries deliberately choose a very narrow target so that they can leave lots of room to generate emissions reductions that they can sell. It turned out actually in, in, in Madrid that that got resolved and it got resolved in favor of strong integrity. Um, so that was, a, that, was a real, that was real progress. Another example is what about emissions reductions that get sold to airlines, which starting in 2021, there's going to be a cap, uh, a cap on emissions from international aviation. Right. And airlines are going to need to buy offset credits to meet that cap. Well, again, if a country if you develop a, you know, the, you get those emissions reductions in a country and then that country sells them to an airline, you got to make sure those only get counted once. And so that Paris accounting regime needs to talk to the aviation counting regime. And again, that was uh, agreed in, in the draft text in Madrid. So that was more progress, but that's been a sticking point. Um, the final piece on 6.2, and I'll take a breath, is something called share of proceeds. This is an area where, you know, economists are, so the, well, I, I'll, I'll say the, the issue at stake is when there's a trade between two countries, uh, should there be some tax, some piece of the value of that trade that goes to fund adaptation in vulnerable countries? That's called the share of proceeds. It would be like a Tobin tax on emissions trading. It, that was very clearly rejected for Article 6.2 in the Paris Agreement. Most economists think that would be a bad idea because it would hinder trading. But it's still something that some countries are insisting on, and, and that actually proved to be a major sticking point in Madrid and one that's not been resolved. Hmm. Interesting. So, so those are all issues that fell under the rubric of 6.2. I know, um, you know there's a lot going on with 6.4 as well, but you know, looking in the interest of time, can, can you give us maybe a super brief yes. uh, uh, sure. review on 6.4? Yeah. And then and then we might talk about a couple other things. Absolutely. The 6.4 piece it had some of those same issues around share of proceeds and so on, um, although you know, those really belonged in the 6.4 discussion. Similar issues around double counting. The main issue that held up 6.4 is basically uh, whether there's a, um, whether there ought to be a loophole for these 6.4, let me say, special accounting for 6.4 credits uh, because they're generated through this UN mechanism. Should they be treated differently than the credits in the bilateral mechanism? Brazil said yes. Brazil wanted special treatment um, for those 6.4 credits. And there was real concern that that would effectively allow double counting um, since some of those credits might also show up, uh, the emissions reductions might show up on Brazil's inventory. Very quickly, I should add, there's one more big issue here that, that's, you know, uh, especially it comes up in 6.4, and that is what happens to all of the credits that are lying around from that Kyoto Protocol clean development mechanism? Uh, those were all generated before 2020, and they've been worthless, essentially, since the EU stopped accepting CDM credits a few years ago. Uh, countries like Brazil, India, China want those credits to carry over into the new regime, and they wouldn't be accounted for in any way because they're all pre-2020 before the Paris Agreement starts. So that's a big question, that, carry, that question of carryover. Can you carry over old credits into the new regime? That was a big sticking point. Right. Okay, so to wrap up this discussion about Article 6, um, the sort of overarching question that's in my head is like, how big of a deal is this? Um, you know, if these things never get fully resolved, how much does that constrain you know, the ability uh, of the international community to reduce emissions or reduce them at low costs uh, in the years to come? 
So that's a great question, and, and the answer is it doesn't. Um, so the Paris Agreement was written with this in mind very clearly to say um, that uh, countries, it, so Article 6 as it's written recognizes that countries can use transferred credits or mitigation outcomes to meet their Paris NDCs. Um, and they can do that even if no guidance is agreed on. So in the, in the ideal world, you would get guidance because you want to have this kind of consistent accounting we've been talking about. But the Paris Agreement is very clear that you don't need that guidance to go forward. And so what we're saying is, look, the UN has tried twice. It's failed twice. Sure, you know, come back and try again in Glasgow, but don't wait for the UN. Countries can and should go ahead and start uh, agreeing, you know, countries that are really serious about markets should start agreeing their own rules for high integrity emissions trading. And we think they can do that. Um, they could start doing that uh, right away, essentially. And, and then the UN could catch up and, and could follow, you know, law could follow practice in that case. So we think there's a pathway for countries to form kind of a coalition of carbon markets and move ahead right away. Mm. All right. Well, that's encouraging. So zooming out now from Article 6 and some of the details, um, one of the events or, or, you know, moments that got a lot of news coverage uh, during the COP was a substantial number of protesters who disrupted the conference, um, largely to demand greater ambition in terms of environmental action. Uh, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, what was your reaction uh, in, in two ways? First, your reaction to the arguments raised by the protesters, and then your reaction to the sort of tactics that they used to get their argument across. So, so first of all, you know, I thought, and I, this is something I said in my, some of my press quotes, and actually was a common theme across the environmental community. It was very clear because of those protests, but also because of everything else that's been happening over the last year with Greta Thunberg and so on, the gap between what the public is, is demanding, what citizens are demanding, what youth in particular are demanding in terms of action, and what the UN process is delivering, that gap is wider than ever. And that's partly because the UN process is, uh, is slowing down. Uh, is, we were in a, a lull, as I said, and it's, and it's largely because there's so much more awareness and demands from, uh, from the youth uh, and from other activists. And, you know, look, I, um, I'm now an, an older generation of environmental uh, advocates and of climate activists, so, um, you know, I don't agree with all of the substantive points that, that the really younger generation makes on policy, but I think it's been an extraordinarily important and vital um, movement and has been, you know, it's an extraordinary source of kind of wind at our backs for all of those who are working on climate because they are showing how much this matters to the, this next generation and they're inspiring many others, including of my generation, to act and to call for action. So I think it's tremendously important. You mentioned the other piece, which is, well, what about the reaction? You know, I'm, I'm sort of of two minds. I mean, my first reaction was, okay, <laughs> the only thing that the UN Framework Convention seems that it can do well and fast is kick people out of the conference who are calling for faster action, <laughs> right? So the irony <laughs> that, you know, they're blocking the plenary where you're getting these speeches droning on and on and on about how we have to act and not talk, right? And the irony that the people who are demanding action get kicked out post-haste, that wasn't lost on anybody. I will say, I, you know, I, 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 I think that the, the folks who are actually the security personnel who are actually there were, you know, following protocol and these things kind of spiral out of, 
out in that way. Um, so I, I wasn't, you know, I, I can't say whether they handled it the right way or the wrong way, but the irony was, was not lost on anyone. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is kind of lightning round. I'm asking you mm. really, really big questions, yeah, but kind of one-offs. So the next really big one-off question is, uh, you know, is, a, is about the U.S. role. Um, so, you know, what role did the U.S. delegation play in the negotiations this year? And how has President Trump's intention to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, um, which would take effect in 2021, how has that um, uh, announcement sort of affected the dynamics of the U.S. participation? Yeah, so I think this is an important question, and, and can, you know, there's a quick answer, but it's different than the conventional narrative. It's easy in this era right now, it's easy to say, okay, nothing happened at the U.N., you know, it must be that the Trump administration was blocking everything. Uh, and that's not the case. Um, the Trump administration is doing a huge amount to undermine climate action right now, don't get me wrong, they're doing everything they can at home in terms of domestic actions. And by uh, pulling out of the Paris Agreement, they are threatening to, they're certainly trying to cripple it and they are, uh, they're, they're doing a good job of slowing it down. So it was, um, the, so the absence of the, of the U.S. in any uh, political level um, was, has been a big part of why we're seeing these things grind to a halt because when the U.S. is not there to stand alongside Europe and other countries and call for greater action, it opens up all sorts of opportunities for mischief. It also means that, you know, when China looks to its main trading partner and we're going in the other direction, China no longer has as much of an interest in being, uh, you know, in, in devoting a lot of time or leadership to climate. So Trump walking away from Paris has played a critical role in undermining the Paris Agreement, and that was part of the context of these talks, no doubt about it. But the delegation that was actually there uh, was largely made up of State Department professionals who were there in the Obama administration. They are dedicated professionals who are widely respected. Um, they were doing everything they could, I think, in, in many ways to improve the outcome, but they, you know, they're not, they weren't there at a political level. Um, and, uh, and, and there are, frankly, some longstanding U.S. positions that, uh, that, that a number of um, you know, countries that, that are at odds with, with some other countries around loss and damage and so on. So the main problem from the Trump, it's a sin of omission, not commission, if you will. It's the fact that they're not there that is really hurting us rather than that uh, the Trump administration was actively making mischief. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So... Last of my kind of lightning round questions here uh, before we ask our final question, uh, which is about what's on the top of your reading stack. Um, if we look toward to next year to uh, COP26 in Glasgow, as you mentioned, um, you mentioned that nations are expected to submit their updated nationally determined contributions, their NDCs, where one one might hope that they would be you know, ratcheting up their ambition. What are the things that you're thinking about now and that you'll be thinking about over the next year or so uh, as we look forward to that next COP? Yeah, so I mentioned briefly that next year is, um, you know, the sort of the year of ambition, right? It's also now we'll have markets potentially on the agenda for the third year in a row. But look, I think the major issue is that gap I mentioned before between where emissions are headed, including with existing NDCs, existing targets, and where they need to go if we're going to have a hope at meeting the Paris objectives or, or averting climate catastrophe. So what we need most is greater ambition, deeper emissions reductions and cuts from the major countries. The Paris provides a framework 
to do that, within which that can happen, but it, it, Paris is only as good as the commitment by countries. And so while the talks in uh, Glasgow next year are going to be an important milestone in the UNFCCC process, the more important things I'm going to be looking for uh, are how does Europe implement its Green Deal that uh, Ursula von der Leyen just announced last week? Uh, and in, in particular, does it reach greater ambition by extending its use of its own emissions trading scheme or system? How does China um, continue to navigate um, you know, its position of potential leadership on climate, but uh, its relationship with the U.S. And China's set to launch the world's largest emissions trading system next year for its power sector. And watching how that goes will be an important sign of how well China is positioned to increase its own ambition. And then, of course, the U.S. elections will be critical uh, to this. Uh, but there are also things happening at the state level in the U.S., um, New Jersey rejoining the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, a number of other states looking to either join the Reggie trading system or maybe uh, implement trading systems of their own. So there's a lot going on. The bottom line is what I'm going to be looking for over the next year is actually what happens in countries where the, um, the policies are put in place, because that's how we get more ambition. And what countries bring to Glasgow is just going to be a reflection of what they're able to do at home. Right. Absolutely. So a lot to keep track of, um, but um, but a lot to a lot to watch for for the next year. Uh, Nat Cohan, thank you so much again for joining us today. This has really been a, a fascinating discussion, and I, I think our listeners will appreciate the fact that we took ten minutes uh, extra of their time to to really understand it all. So I want to close it out now with uh, asking the the final question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. Um, and I'll just briefly recommend two uh, two blog posts that I read uh, this week on the COP twenty five that people can check out if they want to dive a little bit deeper uh, into the subjects we've talked about today. First is uh, Robert Stavens' excellent blog, uh, An Economic View of the Environment. Uh, Rob sort of gives his assessment of the outcomes of COP25 and focused on those Article 6 issues that we were talking about. And then second is uh, a blog post from Elliot Derringer at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Uh, his view is a little bit more pessimistic than Rob's, I think, and it covered some of the other topics, uh, including the loss and damage area and, and the ambition uh, components that uh, that we were talking about today, Nat, um, and uh, but really offers a lot of useful insights. So I'd encourage people to check those out for more information. And uh, Nat, how about you? What's on the top of your reading stack? I'm going to give you a very surprising answer. It even surprises myself. But um, <laughs> I read uh, Naomi Klein's book, um, This Changes Everything. I disagree with almost everything in there. But I recommend it to people who, like me, believe strongly in the power of markets and economic incentives to solve the climate crisis because she presents a, you know, she, she was in a place three or four years ago, it seemed like she was on the fringe. Uh, her arguments are now, I think, at the center of a lot of climate progressives thinking. She presents cogent arguments we have to grapple with. And so I don't endorse, this is the opposite of endorsement. Right. I don't endorse what she says, but we need to grapple with it. And she's, it, it's a much more serious and nuanced argument than I had assumed going in. So it was an interesting experience for me to grapple with that, with that book. Great. Well, I certainly appreciate that and, um, and hope our listeners will check it out and, you know, get, get up to speed on the range of views that are out there. Um, so once again, Nat Cohen from the Environmental Defense Fund, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. Well, thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.